From coast to coast to coast, you're listening to Terra Informa. Welcome back to Terra Informa. I'm Ashley Coaches, and I'll be your host for the next half hour of environmental news from across Canada and around the world. This week, it's finally starting to feel like spring. To celebrate the arrival of gardening season, we're bringing you a story about growing food in the most unlikely of places, the city of Yellowknife in the Northwest Territories. The story touches on the determination and creativity required to farm in the North and what makes it all worth it. Keeping on the topic of food, we also dive into the topic of regenerative agriculture. But first, here are some environmental headlines. On April 3, 2018, the Alberta government proposed amendments to the Emergency Management Act as a response to the increase in natural disasters in the province. These natural disasters include the 2011 Slave Lake wildfires, the 2013 Southern Alberta floods, and the 2016 Wood Buffalo wildfires. The amendments create the ability for a new local authority emergency regulation. This regulation provides municipalities with direction on management practices. Some examples are training requirements for cities, local emergency management plans, and the required use of incident command systems. Under the proposed changes to the Act, first responders are not liable for individuals who refuse to follow evacuation orders, and anyone who refuses evacuation orders could be fined $10,000. The rules will become more clear about how compensation will be handled when property is damaged from an emergency response and not the actual emergency. The government will start taking feedback on the amendments from the first responders, local elected officials, and the municipal directors of emergency management, Métis Settlement, and First Nations communities in June. The goal of this legislation is to make sure that cities and emergency managers are better able to respond in disaster situations and that the province and municipalities are coordinated in the mitigation of emergencies and the response. Terror Informer. Carter Gorzitsa had the opportunity to speak with France Benoit, who has lived in the city of Yellowknife in the Northwest Territories for 30 years. France was previously a policy worker with the government of the Northwest Territories and now works as a farmer. Carter spoke with her to find out how she found herself in Yellowknife and about the challenges and rewards of growing food in a northern climate. There are some challenges, you know, we don't have a lot of, uh, of soil, for example, we have a lot of um, sunshine, which does, I mean, which is nice, but it does create some issues because we have so much uh, sunshine in the summer. Um, but I think the most important thing is to, is to believe <laughs> that it is possible. It's to believe that you can grow food um, up north and not to let them, the challenges um, drag you down. My name is uh, France Benoit. I uh, came up north uh, to Yellowknife almost, uh, oh boy, 30 years ago, I would say. 
and um, I was originally a policy advisor with the government of the Northwest Territories, and then I became a filmmaker, and now I am a farmer. So what initially brought you up to Yellowknife? Like, did you do policy in the Northwest Territories before that or after? No. um, What brought me to the Northwest Territories originally was a student exchange in Fort Smith and uh, really liked it. Decided to come back to work in the summer in Hay River as a barge cleaner and uh, eventually made my way to Yellowknife. And um, I studied the North at uh, university. And so my presence up North was not surprising. (laughs) And I decided to, um, of course, to do what most people say they do is I stayed for two years I'm going to stay for two years and but it's been almost um, 30 years now and um, started my first job with the Department of Education and I left that in 2000. So you said you studied the north what like initially interested you in northern Canada? Um, Coming on a student exchange from my CIGEP in Montreal to come to Fort Smith um, really opened my eyes to the north and uh, decided to come back in the summer to help pay for my uh, studies and uh, worked in Hay River then for two summers. And still the north was not uh, out of my system, if I can put it that way, and uh, decided to do a master's in polar studies, so did that and still... Coming up north was not out of my system. If anything, it was uh, it was even more. I lived in Greenland for a year and uh, eventually settled here in Yellowknife in uh, 1989. Was there a lot of people um, like gardening and farming? I guess in Yellowknife when you started. Uh, no, and I had before I moved to Yellowknife absolutely no gardening um, experience. And this is why I feel that my own personal experience is is one that brings hope, <laughs> because it really all took place in the Northwest Territories. Um, in fact, my family owned a little um, grocery store, and for me, which was attached to our house. So for me, food came from that store, and uh, uh, there was no gardening in my uh, in my family um, at all. It is only when I moved to Yellowknife, and after a couple of years, I bought the house that I'm still currently um, living in, which is uh, 25 kilometers outside the city limits of, of Yellowknife. I live off-grid, and um, and it came with a little garden. And uh, so I was curious and planted a few things, and you know, some friends uh, gave me a hand. and uh, But I quickly realized that um, people were giving me very um, different um, advice. And I think what happens, it was not really at that time in Yellowknife a um, a gardening culture, if I can put it this way. Um, A lot of the northern knowledge um, had left, had not been passed on from generation to generation. So people came to Yellowknife with their own gardening experience. And uh, so they brought knowledge from their region of the country, from where they came from. So I had people tell me, you cannot grow tomatoes in gardens. It needs to be in the greenhouse. And then I would have a totally different opinion from somebody else. and say, Of course you can grow tomatoes in gardens, and you don't need a greenhouse. And so I quickly realized that um, I just needed to develop my 
own experience and my own knowledge. And um, just um, it just took off after that once I realized I have my own microclimate here because I live very close to a lake. It's in a bit of a, of a valley. And um, so I thought, okay, I'm just going to learn from trial and error. What would you identify as some of the major barriers that you faced, specifically talking about like working with the land where you are on your property? So for me, it's, it's sort of a, a paradigm shift that first had to take place is, um, no, it is possible to grow food, and I will do it. It may not be as easy as having, you know, prairie land that is beautifully fertile, but um, it is possible. So for me, it's, it's the main thing. It's to unlock that, that blockage that we have that says it's too far up north, uh, we don't really have soil. And um, and I've proven that, and this is why I like to have open houses at my house because I am so not typical of a um, of a little um, farm. Um, I have I'm literally on sheer bedrock. I am on uneven ground. I've got cliffs on the property. I have a lot of rocks on the property, and so what I do is gather those rocks and create rock gardens, anything that is flat, I try to grow food on, um, build raised beds on uneven ground. So like one side can be six inches and the other side is four feet. And I make do uh, with that, um, have some greenhouses, um, which, you know, have been built over the years and little greenhouses because I don't have uh, a lot of land. Um, but it is possible. Do a lot of um, container gardening as well. Build um, a deck to give myself a flat surface onto which we have um, planters. So I have decks which are, in fact, uh, giant planters. So it is possible. It's just to, to see the, the potential and just to go for it. Yeah, it's absolutely amazing seeing your farm. Driving up to it, I was like, uh, I think I was with Emma, and I was like, are you sure we're in the right place? <laughs> like, I'm like, I just don't. Like, are you sure there's a farm here? Yeah, I'm like, we're, we're, like, this is a really small road, and there's rocks everywhere. And then, yeah, pulling in, it's it's amazing how much like how much use you've made of the space. Yeah. So I remember you talking to me that you said you were working on making your own soil, which is one of the big problems that mm-hmm. people face yeah. in life. So is there, could you slightly, like, run down the process of making your own yeah. soil? Yeah. One of the uh, the challenges that um, we face um, in Yellowknife, unlike south of Great Slave Lake, where they have beautiful um, soil, um, here in Yellowknife, we're on sort of the Canadian Shield, lots of rocks, um, sheer bedrock, and, and so on. So one of the um, the challenges is to is to get um, soil, and in my case, because um, for a number of issues, there's contamination in some of the soil in Yellowknife due to um, the side effects of uh, gold mining um, in uh, in the area. Um, and also, at my house, I have a bridge um, that to get to my house, you have to cross this little bridge. So I cannot have truckloads of soil uh, delivered to my house. So um, instead of just saying, well, then it's not possible, I just uh, looked into it and decided that I would um, make my own soil. Um, so there's uh, 
a method called lasagna gardening, and it's uh, not very uh, difficult. It just takes time. You need to plan sort of one season ahead of time. And uh, you accumulate a lot of uh, organic material. And uh, so I do that constantly. When people come to my house, I tell them to bring their grass clippings and bags of leaves. And, um, and, uh, and I get uh, cardboard, um, which I lay down um, on the ground. If I identify an area that I would like to expand uh, into, uh, first you need to sort of cut the brush, uh, you know, a little bit. And you may have to cut a few trees, and I use the wood uh, in my uh, wood stove. Um, so start by uh, laying down the, the cardboard. Make sure that it is um, very wet. And then I make um, rows or whatever shape that I want to use. And then you just layer upon layer of organic material. Um, and with each layer, you have to wet it down, you know, to hose it down with water very, very well. So in terms of organic materials, I will have um, a layer of grass clippings. I'll have a layer of leaves. I'll have a layer of shredded paper. So I shred all of the paper <laughs> that comes in my house. I get bags of shredded paper from different offices in town. Um, I will put um, kitchen scraps. I will put um, more grass clippings and leaves and shredded uh, paper. Um, if I have bags of um, soil, you know, which I buy at uh, stores in town or some peat, um, anything that, I, that is organic that I can get, uh, my hands on and um, build that up, you know, like at least a good three feet um, high and uh, and then cover that up. So I would do like a, a whole area, like three, four rows at least so that it's really uh, worth it. And uh, then cover that with um, black tarp. And um, um, I use tarps, for example, when the lumber comes to the lumber yard. They cover the wood with these uh, tarps that are uh, black under. And so I gather some of those, and I put that on top of those rows and uh, let it be. Um, so I would do that probably, you know, by the time you have time on the farm, sort of, uh, you know, July, August, when everything has been planted, and essentially what you're doing is maintaining the garden. So there's a little bit more time um, then. Uh, so this is when I lay down the garden, the, those rows of um, organic materials for the following summer. And uh, so the following uh, spring, um, as soon as the snow has uh, melted, you give it a good couple of weeks, the sun shining on the black tarp. It just uh, really helps as well to uh, keep the soil, um, you know, all of that organic material to decompose. And by the time I remove the tarp, when I'm ready to plant, um, it's just beautiful composted soil, soil that um, I made. And... Um, We'll probably top it off a little bit with some bags of soil, which I buy at a store in town, and uh, top that off, and then you're ready for planting. That's awesome. That's definitely an <laughs> example of resilience. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, so you kind of talked about it a little bit just then, but you were talking about the contaminants in Yellowknife. And just for, I guess, like listeners who haven't heard, uh, haven't watched Guardians of Eternity or heard about the arsenic poisoning in Yellowknife, could you just kind of like run down quickly what that is and then kind of maybe how you adapt to that in your own farming practices? Mm -hmm. 
Um, Yellowknife um, has a history of gold mining, and uh, unfortunately, as um, the process of roasting the ore um, released the arsenic in the air, the arsenic was present in um, uh, in the ground. In sorry, in the rocks, and by roasting uh, the rocks to uh, the the ar- to get the gold the arsenic was released um, in the air. And uh, in the first few years of operation of Giant Mine, there were you know, thousands and thousands of kilograms of this um, trioxide, arsenic trioxide, which um, you know, essentially uh, fell onto the ground. So there's, uh, and depending on wind direction and so on, there's some highly contaminated um, areas around Yellowknife. Um, the Yellowknife Denny First Nation um, has a rule um, have decided that there's no, um, you know, berry picking, for example, that takes place um, around the um, the uh, their village, you know, in Dilo and, and Deda, and uh, so they go more onto uh, the islands, for example, on Great Slave Lake. So their traditional territory is not being used anymore for the traditional berry picking and, and so on. So the area was was known as um, being a really uh, beautiful spot for um, blueberry picking. They used to say that uh, it was blue as far as the eye could see. Um, nowadays, you just um, you just do not see uh, blueberry bushes um, close to town. So that is the unfortunate um, uh, consequence of uh, gold mining. Uh, a giant mine in Yellowknife, which um, has, uh, unfortunately, you know, uh, contaminated some of the soil. Uh, there are some hot spots um, in town, which um, have been monitored over uh, the years. Um, but that is certainly a, um, a challenge. I wouldn't say it creates. Uh, it, it, it doesn't mean that there's no gardening and farming that can take place in Yellowknife. It just uh, means that we have. Uh, a few more uh, challenges. And in fact, I think that to take contaminated soil and to somehow turn it in, you know, it's part of, of healing the land, if I can put it this way, uh, by putting um, a greenhouse on it, for example, and to grow things um, upside down, um, all of a sudden gives you a um, use of that soil and uh, to, you know, to make it uh, better in a way. Um, I am fortunate in the sense that I'm 25 kilometers away from the mine, and um, so uh, I do not have myself contamination at uh, at my house. I know it's probably hard to put into words, but what holds you to the north with, like, farming and stuff, obviously, with it being more difficult in the north and all these things? Like, what, yeah, what's keeping you there? The land is keeping me here. Um, The land has been plentiful. Um, I've been fortunate in being successful in the gardening that I've done um, in Yellowknife. And I think that if I was not meant to be here, the land would have spoken. The land would not be as plentiful um, for me. So I am drawn to the north. I think there's a world of possibilities here. And uh, this is where I want to farm. This, This has become... Um, my home, and I feel that the highest authority is is the land. And again, if the land did not want me here, it would have uh, spoken. So I feel um, that this is what I meant to be at this time. So for 
the farmer's market in Yellowknife, which is where I've seen you many times when I was there this summer, um, there's this idea that they want more and more produce, just, I believe, to make a more resilient farmer's market that helps with yeah. food security. So what does a food secure Yellowknife and Yellowknife area look like to you in the future, I guess? The uh, city of Yellowknife has uh, just approved um, in December their 2018 budget, and in it, um, there's uh, funding available um, to commence the work of developing a local food strategy for Yellowknife. So the Yellowknife Farmers Market and other organizations and a coalition of individuals and organizations interested in food-related issues, be it food security or food businesses, you know, with economic development, um, will convene and begin the work of developing a local food strategy for, um, for Yellowknife. And um, uh, there's much to be done. There's high levels of food insecurity um, in Yellowknife. But I think we need to, um, and, and we, we are very fortunate to have um, incredible fish in Great Slave Lake. And uh, so food for me is uh, um, a much higher level of vegetable uh, production, of wild harvesting, um, berry picking, for example, combined with fish and some of the, uh, the wild animals that we have, um, you know, the caribou herds are uh, dwindling unfortunately but we still have moose and certainly a lot of, uh, of fish so um, and to try to do um, import substitution try to have less important food and and maybe importation of food um, can be for different uh, meats for example or different vegetables that we cannot grow and, and harvest um, here but I think to um, to become, and to me this is all about resiliency, but to reduce the, the dependence that we have on imported food um, from elsewhere. Um, you know, I'm thinking of California, for example. I mean, how long can this, this model of commercial agriculture um, continue, really, um, where uh, people harvesting the food are undocumented um, immigrants uh, paid very low wages, um, water being depleted, uh, monoculture based on GMO and pesticide. Um, I think we have an incredible opportunity up north to, um, to not get into um, this cycle of large industrial monoculture and to skip literally the last 50 years and move ahead on small-scale agroecology non-GMO, organic, no pesticide, therefore reducing greatly the cost of production, and to feed ourselves uh, and not just our bodies, but our soul as well. That was Carter Gorzitsa interviewing France Benoit, speaking about farming and the food production in the Northwest Territories. Next, we're bringing you an agricultural eco-babble. Terra Informa Hannah Cunningham dives into the world of regenerative agriculture and tells us what it is, how to do it, and why it's important for the future of food. Automated metering infrastructure. Natural energies. Regulate CO2. PM control strategies. Natural resource exploitation. Steady state. 
the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, Uranium, the Enhanced Oil Recovery, Sustainable Energy, Ecobabble. Conversations about agriculture are becoming synonymous with conversations about the environment. And that makes sense, considering the amount of natural resources that are required to feed the growing global population. Growing food is a give-and-take relationship between us and the land, with the land doing most of the giving. While water and sunlight are two big components of a plant's diet, minerals and other nutrients from the soil are also important for growing healthy and productive crops. Conventional farming practices do give back to the land in the form of fertilizer application, adding back nutrients essential for plant growth that each season's crop take up out of the soil. However, the widespread use of fertilizers has resulted in the runoff of these products. Nutrients like nitrogen and phosphorus are great for increasing the productivity of food crops, but they're also great at increasing the productivity of undesirable plants. When these nutrient products are washed into a water body, say a lake, noxious algal blooms can occur that can affect the health of aquatic species. So how do we give back to farmland without risking the potential spillover of chemical products? Enter regenerative agriculture. Regeneration International, a nonprofit focused on spreading awareness about this type of agriculture, states that the key to regenerative agriculture is not just to, quote, do no harm, unquote, but to actually improve the condition of the land. The goal of regenerative agriculture is to promote the adoption of land use practices that can help regenerate soil fertility and structure, which can then result in the greater ability of the land to store water, sequester carbon from the atmosphere, and promote the biodiversity of plant microorganisms. Methods often used by regenerative farmers include composting, crop rotation, and the integration of animal pasture with cropland. All of these practices encourage the addition and cycling of nutrients in the soil without the use of synthetic fertilizers, relying instead on organic nutrients from manure or the nitrogen-fixing abilities of some crops to add back the essential nutrients that plants take up out of the soil. Activities like composting and the integration of livestock and their manure into food-producing land also allow for the addition of organic matter, which helps to bind the soil together into clumps and helps with water retention, which all helps prevent erosion. These practices can be used to encourage the reaccumulation of rich topsoil in areas where the soil has been stripped of nutrients or has eroded away, allowing food to be grown in areas that previously couldn't support cultivation. All in all, regenerative agriculture strives to leave the land better than we found it, in a way that doesn't interrupt ecological processes that are natural for that specific area. This type of agriculture is currently more labor-intensive and less precise than conventional agricultural practices. However, it's good to be aware of the importance of soil health in food production, and how organic practices can be used to improve the condition of the earth in a more natural way. The Institute for Sustainable Development out of California State University defines regenerative agriculture as, quote, an approach to food and farming systems that works with nature's rhythms and technology, end quote. While we humans often like to think that we're the savviest of the bunch, nature's been in the business of producing food for quite a while. It might just have a few nutrient-rich tricks up its sleeve, and maybe we should be taking some notes. Uranium, the enhanced oil recovery. Sustainable energy. Ecobabble. And that was Terra Informa, Hannah Cunningham. If you want to hear even more stories like that, check out our website at terrainforma.ca. And while you're there, look for the survey tab in the menu.
We would love to get to know our listeners and what you enjoy about the show. Your input can influence the content we gather over the next year. Also, upon completing the survey, you can enter a draw for a chance to win the opportunity to host Terraforma, like we are right now, with us in Edmonton. If you're from another city, thanks to modern technology, you can still co-host from afar. Speaking of co-hosting, have you ever wanted to be on the radio? Terra Informa is recruiting. If you want to join our team and share your stories, check out the About Us tab on terrainforma.ca. Well, that's all the time we have for this week's show. Terra Informa is a production of CJSR 88.5 FM in Edmonton on Treaty 6 territory. If you have any questions or comments, send us an email to terra at cjsr.com or tweet it at terrainforma. And don't forget to subscribe on iTunes. Thanks this week to our contributors, Carter Gorzitza, Amanda Rooney, Hannah Cunningham, Sydney Kravonik, and Charlotte Thompson. I've been your host, Ashley Coaches. Catch you next week.